Um, a few years ago now, quite a few years ago, a TV series called, what was it called? The Long Way Round. That was released in this country to sort of near universal acclaim. Have you heard of it? The Long Way Round? Some of you might have uh, seen it. If you haven't seen it, and if you haven't heard of it, it really does not matter much. The premise is very, very simple. So you had two celebrities you had, let me try and get this right, you had Ewan McGregor, we know who that is, a trustworthy Scotsman, um, Ewan McGregor of Star Wars fame, and you had his friend, a guy called Charlie Boorman, and the premise was that they were going to take a trip, okay, so these guys were going to jump on motorbikes, and they were going to leave London, Ewan McGregor, Charlie Boorman, leave London, they were going to travel eastwards, they were going to circumnavigate the globe and all manner of terrain and problems and they were eventually going to arrive. I think it was in New York many weeks, many months later. Maybe now you can see why it was called The Long Way Round. The Long Way Round. Now, I'm not really one for a TV series. As my wife would happily affirm, I tend to get bored about a quarter of a way into a TV series, much to her annoyance. But this was a bit different, The Long Way Round. I liked it for a couple of reasons. One, I liked it just to see all of the preparation involved in this trip. It might not sound that interesting, but it really was. Like the first few episodes of the series were just given over to the planning. You know, everything had to be right for this trip. You know, the bikes had to be just perfect. The luggage couldn't be too heavy, couldn't be too light. All the paperwork, visas, you can imagine it, can you? All of it, it was just really interesting to see that. Do you know what was more fascinating? What was more fascinating were the kind of principles that had to govern this trip. Do you follow me? So it wasn't just you and McGregor, Charlie Boorman, oh, things are planned, let's jump on the bikes and let's go. It wasn't like that. They always had to be, as they traveled, asking questions and have certain perspective in mind. Maybe you can think of the sort of things I'm talking about. They're traveling along, but they're always asking, is this next leg of the journey going to be interesting? <laughs> After all, we're trying to make money out of a TV series here, okay? Or they're traveling along and they're asking themselves, is this next leg of the journey, is it, is it, is it going to be safe? After all, traveling through Mongolia on a motorbike is probably not the safest thing. Do you see the idea? They don't just jump on their bike and they go. They're always thinking through. They've always got perspective. They've always got guiding principles in view. Well, last time we were in the sermon series, maybe you remember what I said. We, as the people of God, are on a march. We are on a journey ever forward to the promised land. And this morning, what happens is we dig into this section that we read, is we find that you and I can't just jump on a motorbike and go as Christians, that we too have to have certain questions, ideas, certain perspectives in view. You and I have to have guiding principles in mind as we journey forward to the heavenly Canaan ahead. Now, do we want to see some of these guiding principles? Let's hope so. So can I ask you to turn with me to the book of Numbers? Let's go back uh, to Numbers chapter 1, near the end of Numbers chapter 1, on page, what was it? Page 109, if you're using the church Bible. And if you've got that there, the first principle that I want us to think about is this, that as we journey 
as Christians. We are to seek intimacy with God through Christ. There's the first principle for our travel. You and I as Christians are to seek intimacy with our God through Christ as we journey forward. Okay. Right. If you were uh, here last time, what was it? It wasn't last week. I was away preaching elsewhere last week. But so two weeks ago, if you were here, maybe you remember what we looked at. Maybe you remember what I said, that with the exception of one particular group, then chapter one dealt with this enormous census of all the men of fighting age. Do we remember that? So there was, everyone had to be counted, the men of fighting age, except one exception to that group. Well, as we read this, then immediately we are told, we get the identity of that accepted group in verse 47. So have a look at that. So who's the exception? So God said, count everyone, count all the men, except for, verse 47, except for the Levites. Okay, so Levites we're focusing on here. Now, no sooner are they mentioned then you and I are given detail about what, who these guys are, what their task was. So the Levites were to oversee the tabernacle or the tent of meeting where God dwelt. Now maybe I think, do you know what, maybe we need to just flesh that out. So I'm saying to you, the Levites kind of, they oversee the tabernacle. But maybe we want a little bit more detail. Let me try and be clever. <laughs> it's always destined to fail if I try and be clever. But let's go for some alliteration here. So what were the Levites to do? Maybe you picked up on it, did you? The Levites, first of all, were to care for the tent of meeting. Straightforward idea, isn't it? So when it was time for the people of God to travel in the direction of Canaan, the Levites were the men who were to take down this tent, roll up the tent, you know, to take out the holy items from the tent of meat, make sure they were cared for. You see the idea? More than that, what else were they to do? Alliteration. So care for. The Levites were also to carry the tabernacle. That couldn't be any more straightforward or self-explanatory, could it? So the Levites, who are they? Levites were the blokes who had to actually physically cart this tent from point A to point B. Now that's fine. They care for them. They carry the tabernacle. This is what I want you to get. Listen to me. The Levites were the men who were to camp around the tent of meeting. Did everyone pick up on that in the reading or not? It's the idea that the Levites were actually almost form what you might call like a human cordon around God's tabernacle. Do you get that idea? So the Levites are to pitch their tent and all of their tents around where God had his tent. So it's a kind of like a barrier, isn't it? Isn't that the idea here? It's like this protective ring around the tabernacle of God. Okay, at this point, what could we do, do you think? Do you know, if we had more time, if time was not against us, what we could do is apply all of this stuff with the Levites. Could we not? I mean, after all, what does the New Testament make very, very clear to us? That we as a church, the church of Jesus Christ, also should have specially assigned men, shouldn't we? Men whose job it is to support the worship of God. Isn't that right? Office bearers, deacons, and elders. And do you see some correspondence or some parallels here with the Levites? Do you or not? Now, like the Levites, our office bearers, they should be men who are called into action by God. They are men who should be dedicated, like the Levites, dedicated to this task. And then you think about the arrangement of the camp. What do we want to see from our office bearers? They must be men who are ever spiritually camped near 
our God. Our office bearers should be always in close proximity to the God that we worship. So if we had more time, we could unpack that in a little bit more detail. But we do not, and uh, we have to go elsewhere. Because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong later on, but I think there is in this first section that we're dealing with a verse that grabs us by the scruff of the neck. Really grabbed me anyway. Have a look at verse 51. Adrian brought it out really well when he, when he read this portion of scripture. So there, there's this barrier, isn't there? And the Levites are around the tabernacle. But what should happen if somebody seeks to trespass and get to the tent of meeting? You noticed it, didn't you? I bet you noticed it when we read this out. What happens to an intruder? The intruder has to be killed. Somebody tries to get beyond the Levites to get to the tent. That person has to be killed immediately. That is such an arresting idea. I think you and I just have to make really clear about what that means and why that... Can Can I just turn it over to you this morning? Why do you think that the intruder has to be killed? You know, why if they get... Why do you think... Are you thinking just now, it is in a sense to kind of protect God in his holiness... Is that the idea? Almost like, do you remember those adverts that used to be on TV for cleaning products? They were so twee and so sexist. It was like, in this country anyway, it's for sort of flash or jiff or some cleaning product. Do you remember these sorts of things? You would have the mum at home and she'd be working really hard using this cleaning product. She would get the floor in the kitchen immaculate and it would be gleaming and she'd be sweating and she'd get it done. It'd be perfect, beautiful. Then what would happen? Her son would come home from football with football boots on and he would walk across the floor. You know the sort of idea? Is that the sort of thing you're thinking about here? That this person must be killed almost to protect God from defilement. Like if you're thinking like that, it is not that at all. You see, what scripture makes clear elsewhere is that if God should be approached in an inappropriate way, yes, God might unleash righteous anger, but here's the detail about it. Listen to me. That anger would not just endanger the intruder, But that anger of God, that righteous anger of God would, listen, it would threaten the whole of the camp. You see it, that fire might rage out like it does with Nadab and Abihu, if you know your scripture. Or maybe a plague might come out as threatened later on in this book. But you see the idea that it wouldn't just endanger this trespasser, but all of the people of God. Look at verse 53. Why does this person have to be killed? So that there would be no wrath on the people, the community. You see, is this to protect God? This isn't to protect God. This is to protect us. This is to protect the people. Of This is a preventative act. Now, we've launched through a lot of detail in a short space of time, but I do start here and I wonder if you're a Christian this morning. If you are born again and you read Numbers chapter 1, that last section, do you not already see cause for joy in your life? Do you not? I mean, is there not cause for praise and gratitude even at this moment? Because I'm standing up here and we've got a fancy building, don't we? There's all this stuff everywhere. But where's the cordon? Like, where's the tents and where's the barrier? And where are the Levites? 
And, and you see back to me, don't you? You see, but we, we have none. I mean, do you not see it? As you, Christian friend, as you travel through this life, do you, do you appreciate how privileged you are? As you journey through life, you get to enjoy danger-free access to a holy and righteous creator, God. And in fact, what's happened this very morning as we've come in here, do you know what God's done already for you in Christ Jesus? He has welcomed you into his tent and done so as a friend of his. You understand that? You've passed beyond the Levites. You've waved them bye-bye. You've passed through that cordon, over the barrier. You've come into the most holy place. You can worship God with intimacy, friendship in Jesus. And if that does not your heart to praise this morning, I know it will. You remembering how this intimacy with God comes about. Because you think of it in light of Numbers chapter 1. What has been done for us to save us, to protect us? What has been done for us? But an intruder has been killed. Isn't that it? I mean, what, what do you see when you look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? What has happened for you, friend? Not only there has the Lord Jesus Christ taken upon himself all of your defilement and all of your wickedness and sin. But what has Jesus done at the cross? He has approached a holy and a perfect God. And what has happened for us, the children of God? What has happened for us? The Father there in the darkness of Golgotha has poured out the full capacity, the full force of his righteous anger on his only beloved son. And he has punished him for you. Punished him for you, Christian friends. I wonder sincerely if as a church we are losing sight of the enormity of the gospel. I wonder if we're losing sight of the great privilege we have even now. Because what is this first principle of travel? You and I can, should, must seek intimacy with our creator God and all through Christ. Okay, let's move on. Secondly, we see here, as we journey through the Christian life, we are to be centered on Christ. Make sure you get it. We are to be centered on Christ. We are to enjoy intimacy with God through Christ, but we are also to be centered on Christ. And here, if we can ignore the street sweeper, we can uh, turn in chapter 2. And believe it or not, what I want us to do here is to think about, bear with me here, to think about the arrangement of the camp, okay? I want to say right now, it's better than you think it is. (laughs) The arrangement of the camp is what I want us to think about. Do you agree that chapter 2 is quite a strange chapter of Scripture? It's like an Excel spreadsheet almost. To, to uh, You can see why, again, that uh, Reverend Perkins and myself passed the reading on to somebody else. We delegated wisely uh, today, poor Mr. Priest, with the reading. It's like watching the Matrix or something, isn't it? So you have just numbers appear before your your very eyes as you read it. And because it is so complicated and so difficult on first reading to get... What I think will help us, if you and I appreciate the shape of the camp, 
So for those in the congregation who are here, one of the missionaries we support is with the Kalamajong people in Uganda. They came to talk about the camp, and it's a circular camp. So it was a circular camp in the Kalamajong in Uganda. That was very often the way. I need you to appreciate that it's not a circular camp. So Numbers 2 is in the shape of a square. Does that mean anything to us? Ah, truly it does. Now just as in Revelation, you, you, how is the people, how are we pictured the people of God? We're pictured as the city of God. The covenant community descends from heaven in a perfect cube. So here in the beginning of Numbers, we have the covenant community and we're pictured with equal size. And, and you see how it's a square, do you? You have, what, 12 tribes, of course, but we have three tribes in the east and we have three tribes in the south, we have three tribes in the west, and three tribes in the north. It's a square. Now, you know, again, I'm, just, I'm going to fight with the clock. And I say, if we had longer, you can see what we could do with that, given the detail and the arrangement of that. We could go on about how the church cannot be haphazard. The people of God, we can't be haphazard. We can't be higgledy-piggledy. We should, as a congregation, reflect God's desire for order. And, and I, yeah, we could go there. We really could go there. But I think what happens right now in chapter 2 is very similar to what happens at the end of chapter 1. And there is a phrase that grabs us. It certainly grabbed me, I hope. It's almost like the Holy Spirit shines a torch, a spotlight on a particular phrase here. Would you look at it with me? Look at the end of verse 2. It's marvelous. Point your children to it. The end of verse 2. The arrangement of the camp, yes, fine, look at it. We're told the people of God were to camp. How? Isn't it brilliant? They're to camp facing the tent of meeting where God dwelt on every side. So you get the picture, do you? Do you see that? So whether they are traveling or stationary, you're with me that the tabernacle of God's got to be bang in the heart. Yeah, doesn't it? It's going to be smack bang the center of the people of God. Now, you may be right now thinking, oh, I know where we're going to go in action here. Oh, the tabernacle. God's presence has got to be in the heart of the covenant community. I know where he's going to go with this. I want to be really precise. So I need to ask you to do me a favor here. I need you to turn to John's gospel, John chapter one. And again, parents, please, if you can encourage your children to see this, John 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14. If you're new to church, some of you might be new, relatively new to church, you must understand that when we're in John's gospel, at the beginning of John's gospel, when John talks about the word, he is talking about the Christ, the eternal son of God, when he talks about the word. Look with me to verse uh, 14. And what does he say about Christ, the word? Christ became, what, flesh, made his dwelling amongst us. And now you know where I'm going, don't you, friends? If you're not new to church and you've been here for a long time, you know where I'm going to go. The idea there, the Greek here, the idea of made his dwelling among us, the idea is very similar to numbers. So the idea that you've got at the beginning of John's gospel, Christ, Christ, Christ became flesh and pitched his tent right in amongst us. Christ Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. And now you see 
why we're being precise, do you? Because who is it exactly that should be at the center and the core of the covenant community today? Who is it that we should be looking to always as a church and focused on? You say back to me, do you know, the, the Christ, the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who is to be, that we are to spiritually camp around and focus on, to be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? But maybe you say back to you, maybe say to me just now, you say, but practically speaking, you know, that sounds wonderful, but it's a bit up there. Practically, how do we ensure as a church that Christ is center? But I would say to you, use your imagination. Like you can all in here imagine what this camp would have looked like in numbers too, can you? What did we say? 603,550 men, the rest, the women, the children, and you can imagine it. So is it not true that having the tabernacle in the center of that camp would have dominated everything in their lives? Don't you think so? Everything would have been done against the backdrop of that tabernacle. And is that not true for the way that you and I should live? Let me tie it down. Think about it. Imagine it. Aren't I right in saying that the very first thing those people would have seen every single morning... As they open their own tent, what's the first thing they see? They see the tabernacle. So is it not the case that you and I should begin every single morning looking first to Jesus Christ in praise and prayer? Isn't that it? And then you think about it. Isn't it true that every activity in that camp, every task they had would have been done against the backdrop of this tabernacle? Just as that's the case, what's the case for you and me this week, tomorrow, day after? Everything that we do, every work at home, in employment, with our friends, everything done in reference to Christ with one eye on Jesus. Isn't that right? But do you know what I think is most important of all? Now you think about this. Just as any pagan nation encountering the people of Israel would have been blown away by the structure of this camp, the pagans thinking the tabernacle is in the middle of their camp. What's true of you and I? That our identity as Christ-centered people should be evident to everyone that we meet. It should be clear to everyone that we are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it, do you not? What is this principle play? As we journey, we must be looking to Jesus. We must be, you and I, camped around the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that we must seek intimacy with God through Christ, don't we? We see that you and I must also be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the third and the last point today, as we journey through this life as Christians, we must also be led by the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you get it. We must be led by the Lord Jesus. Um, I did my uh, education in Scotland. Um, Alistair Begg said this yesterday at uh, the Ligonier Conference, and he was very proud of the fact that he was educated in Scotland. I'm not sure, so sure that I think the education system had obviously changed by the time that I was going through. Um, but I did my primary school education in Scotland in a town called Inverness, in the north of Scotland. And I remember this about my primary school, that whenever we had a school trip, whenever we had any sort of trip away to anything, which usually wasn't particularly spectacular in Inverness, um, what my teacher would do is take a class and put them into groups 
I'm pretty sure the teachers in this room just now probably do exactly the same thing, certainly in primary school. You get the idea? So the teacher will take us as a class and say, you're the red group. You're the blue group and so forth, you know, green group. And you can understand why that was, right? You know, the bus would arrive and it wasn't just going to be this utter chaotic stampede it was going to be the teacher would say, okay, the blue group, you get, who's behaving best? That's how they used to do it, didn't they? Who's behaving best? Oh, blue group, you're doing well. You go on first. The rest of you sit down, sit still. And then, oh, red group, you're doing okay. You can go on. So avoid this chaotic stampede. Because everyone wants to get onto the back of the bus as quickly as possible. Now, why am I saying that to you? I need you to appreciate not just that in Numbers chapter 2, that there was a tribal order of travel. Is everyone following me? You get the idea? So when God says it's time for us to move ever forward towards Canaan, it wasn't least that everyone just gets up. It's like, right, let's go. Let's move. Somebody pick up the tabernacle. Let's go. It wasn't like that. I need you to appreciate that there was a tribal order. But I need you this morning to appreciate more than that. I need you to appreciate exactly what that tribal order was. But don't look at your Bible. You don't often hear that from the front of this church, I don't think. But I need you to appreciate what the tribal order was. But I want to test you. What, if you maybe didn't pick up, what would you expect the tribal order to be? Because we know quite a bit about the ancient world, don't we? So what would we expect the tribal door? I'm going to, I can see you. I mean, don't cheat. What do we expect? It's the ancient world. So am I right? I'm right. And I am saying that you would expect the firstborn son. Yeah. You would expect the eldest son, wouldn't you? Lead the way because it's, we have to understand heading out eastward. This is, is a privilege. And some status to be leading this camp. So you would expect the tribe of Reuben, you would expect the tribe of the eldest son to lead the way. Now you can look. Look at verse 9, please. Have a look at verse 9. It's not Reuben. Who is it? Actually, in the place of priority, the place of status and privilege... It's the tribe of Judah. Now, perhaps because I'm sure you know your Bible really, really well, uh, perhaps that begins to ring little faint bells of recognition, does it, people? That's the tribe of Judah. What, what are we thinking there? We're thinking of Genesis 49, aren't we? Do we remember the bit where the sons are brought into Jacob's presence and Jacob blesses his sons? Genesis 49, do we remember that? And what does he say to Judah, his son Judah? He says to Judah, one day you're going to lead. He says, you're going to rule. In fact, he says what? He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, doesn't he? You know this, don't you? So you see how lovely this is? What have we got here? We've got a partial fulfillment of this. Here is Genesis 49, partially fulfilled. You've got Judah leading the way of the people of God. Is that good? You like it? Is it good? Come on. We're the church of God, the New Testament church. We are people born again is better than that for us, isn't it? Because what do we know now from this? What do we see that you and I are not just to be centered on? We are to be led by who? By the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Is it not true that he is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 49? The ultimate 
fulfillment of this? That actually, Christian friend, you should be going through life constantly asking, is this the way that Christ wants me to go? Is this the route that Jesus wants me to go? And why? Who is he? He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Isn't he, isn't he the great leader, the great, great king promised in God's word? He is the one who has conquered sin with that scepter in his hand. He is the one in the line of Judah that leads his people on and on and on and on. But I do wonder, I wonder if we again have lost sight of this as a church. Is it the case for you today that you are just seeking, even as a Christian, to lead your own life without reference to Jesus? Taking major decisions in your life without looking to your Lord, Savior, and King. You see the reminder here, do you not? You don't need to seek lots of people's opinion as a priority. You don't chart your own course You look ever to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who leads the way. He is the shepherd who leads his sheep, isn't he? What did we see last time? He is the commander that leads his army into battle. And we see here the Lord Jesus Christ, the great ruler that leads his people on, ever onwards to the promised land. And I I, I close the sermon And I need to speak to the people in here who are not in Christ. And it may be the case that you have switched off from the reading onwards. But I would ask you, if you are not believing in Christ, just to switch on just for a moment here. Because I think I know this. I think if you're not a Christian, you also were quite moved by that earlier verse. Is that true that you, if you're not a Christian... That you were made by this idea that an intruder approaching God, regardless of how holy, was to be killed? Did that offend you? This idea that this person had to be killed? Did, did you hate that idea? Then I have to close this sermon and say something that is not very easy to say. But friend, unless things change in your life, you stand facing death a similar but even more serious situation. Did you hear that? That unless in this life you have your condemnation from your sin, your sin lifted off your shoulders by the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen to you in death? Will you listen to me? In death you will come as a defiled sinner and you will come into the presence of a holy and righteous God. And you got on what I mean about God. God's so good that he cannot live next door evil. God's so good and so perfect and so righteous. He cannot turn a blind eye to evil. You will come before that God. And what happens then? Unless in this life you have had the work of the Holy Spirit. Unless you have looked to Christ then you will face the righteous anger of God and not as in numbers one. Not for an instant. But you set to face the righteous anger of God forevermore. Surely you now look to Christ. Now to consider the gravity of that. Eternal punishment. Surely the Spirit moves you to turn to Jesus, to face him in repentance in belief.
Because what happens today if you do that? Do you know what happens? The Holy Spirit gives you 10 pegs. And this morning, by the grace and the wonder, the mercy of God, you would be enabled to set up camp, to set up camp with the community of faith. But do you know what's the most great privilege of all? By the work of the Holy Spirit, you get to set up camp facing Jesus. That is the greatest privilege of all. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, as Harrison has prayed, would you uh, forgive us for the times that we come to Holy Scripture and sigh that we come without expectation that this is your, uh, and without belief that it is your holy and inerrant and life-given word? Would you astound us, Lord God, this morning? Would you please work by your Holy Spirit to breathe new life into dead souls and we pray lord god that you would help us to journey ever forward for the glory and the honor of our king and we pray in jesus name amen